I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Over Everything podcast. My guest this week is one of my favorite follows on Twitter. Yasmin, aka at Carmelo Drama. Yasmin, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, first off, it's the uh, one-year anniversary of the Raptors championship this weekend, um, mm-hmm. and the weather has really allowed for uh, more celebrations to occur. Of course, COVID is you know doing the opposite. But um, uh, how was that night like for you, and what are some of your favorite memories from last year around this time? Um, I was watching it at home uh, with my family, like with every game in the playoffs. But yeah, there was like a big celebration um, in the house. Um, my dad has like been a Raptors fan since Toronto got their own team. Um, so just seeing him like absolutely elated was awesome. And hearing the honking on the street right outside was awesome. Um, but yeah, like it, it was really celebratory and it was really cool seeing like the entire country kind of rally behind a single team. Um, it's not really like that with any other sport in Canada, maybe baseball. You know, it's been a while with that. But, um, yeah, it was really awesome. Um, but I will say my favorite memory was um, everyone sharing the clips of themselves downtown and their experiences there because I was kind of living vicariously through them because I was watching at home here in the West End. Um, uh-huh. But, yeah, I, I was very jealous. It was, it was awesome. Like, I kind of got to um, kind of like everything that you've been kind of hoping for and watching this team for so many years and seeing all of the really like dark and hopeless uh, playoff kind of fizz outs and seeing it kind of result in a championship finally like it, it was so rewarding and this is not something that like it's 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 pretty exclusive like in the last 40 years I read that only 12 teams have won a championship so it's nothing to scoff at, especially in this era of how developed offenses are. Like, this is a real achievement. And seeing kind of the gauntlet of teams that the Raptors actually went through last season was amazing. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it's the type of championship run that you can rewatch like, for years to come. Like, it was not boring by any means. It was very cinematic. Yeah, no, this isn't like a 2018 Warriors championship where it's like... Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember anything that happened other than J.R. Smith not shooting the ball, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. and Le- and LeBron breaking his hand, um, and then showing everybody <laughs> with, uh, with with the cast at the the podium. That was definitely not staged. Um, yeah, I just you know, man, that's the thing. I always want to ask people about this because, like, you know, I, I was on the road, so I was like actually at the game, and I would mm-hmm. never complain about that. Never. It's just like. I was always very curious what that night was like, you know, because, um, yeah, the, just seeing the scenes of just people like it, it was nuts, man. Like they flipped over a bus. There were people were sitting on top of the bus <laughs> and people were like spilling. Like so many people were sitting on top of this flipped over TTC bus that like people were like falling off as more people came on. It was so joyous. Yeah. 
And it's just, to your point, like, how many moments in, like, Canadian sporting history, um, especially recently, have been able to, like, elicit that feeling where, like, you know, everyone's united, you know, towards one thing um, in that one moment and held together. Like, uh, I mean, I guess, yeah, to your point, the Blue Jays kind of have that. But, of course, you know, outside of, you know, the bat flip and a couple other moments, like, it's, you know, they haven't actually gone and done it all the way and you know obviously there's basically no unity in any of the nhl teams like i feel like exactly. i don't know if the canucks won the won the stanley cup no one would it's not like the whole country would be celebrating on behalf of vancouver yeah um uh, and, and so it's really just like do you remember when i don't know if you were watching hockey like this but like 20 what 2010 um sydney crosby scored the goal in overtime it sounds familiar. I don't watch hockey, but like there are glimpses in my memory of that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't watch hockey that seriously either. But I, I just remember it was like it was overtime goal. It was game winning for the goal, I think for the gold medal. And I just remember like running out into my like um, I was living at my parents' house at the time, and it was just like they live in like a townhouse complex, and mm. so I was just like ran to the backyard, and like everyone was out back there being like, yeah, but you know. <laughs> it's not it's not comparable it's yeah it was not like 3.5 million people you know it it, it, it's such a gift because every series like maybe not the magic series but with the um semi-conference finals the conference finals and the finals like there is something super like dramatic and climactic out of every series like how lucky are we that the first championship is something that you could just watch again and again and again like it's it's amazing Mm mm-hmm yeah, exactly. No, it's beautiful basketball too. That's mm-hmm. that's the thing. I mean, I feel like everyone who's not a Raptor fan is probably very sick of Raptor fans just repeatedly bringing things up. But um, hey, man, it was it was a great championship. It was a great championship. Um, it was like not a super team too, which was super enjoyable. I think. Yeah. Because it had like a culmination of um, it, this is a team that had been there, tried to do it for a couple times, uh, and just like finally was able to get over the top. Mixed in with the fact that. They brought in just, like, the perfect players at the perfect time. Like, you're getting one of the last years of, like, a great, great Marcus Gasol. You're getting one of the well, – I mean, maybe one of the last years of, like, a great Kyle Lowry. You're getting, like, one of Kawhi Leonard's prime seasons, if not the prime season for Kawhi. Mm-hmm. Uh, all at the same time. And all the narratives that went into it, it was just, like, so satisfying. So, yeah, like, you genu- genuinely awesome. don't know, like, the outcome of, of the more competitive series. Like, it was a, it was a coin flip, like – we were just hoping for a competitive series. Like with a super team, you kind of expect uh, what you're going to expect. And anything other than that is a disappointment. But with this Mm -hmm. one, it was like real competitive basketball. Like we were seeing the absolute best of every player that was involved. Yeah. And And I think it was like, it was just cool the Raptors won game one. You know what I mean? Like it was yeah. just like it was at home, all the pressure. Refreshing. You know, the Raptors, exactly, right? Raptors have all this history of not, you know, of losing game one. They had lost game one against Orlando. They lost game one against Milwaukee. So for game one of the finals, like I was real nervous. Just like I thought the Raptors were a better team, especially because KD was, it seemed like he was not going to play in the series and he kind of didn't. Yeah. But um, it was just like, it's still the finals. It's still the Warriors. You still don't know if the Raptors maybe you know, tense up on the big stage. And exactly. like, no, they just, they came out and they dominated it. And shout out Pascal, man. To come out like that, like he shot with 15 of 17 in game one. I, I couldn't believe what I was watching. <laughs> like it was insane. Yeah. Anyway, um, so actually I, I want to ask you before actually we, we, we go on to talk about some other subjects, um, such as the season 
restart sort of not being in peril but just sort of like in question and, and sort of players raising very legitimate points but mm-hmm. um, I want to ask you like what, what's your Raptors origin story so you mentioned your dad has basically been a fan since 95 yeah um <laughs> I we I spoke about it in the like I think it was the very first episode of the Dishes and Dimes podcast which is a, a Raptors and NBA podcast I host with a bunch of other girls um and we were speaking about each of our um Raptors origin stories, right? So for me personally, my dad is a huge NBA fan. Even when the Raptors didn't have a team, he would just root for the nearest regional team, which was the Knicks. So he was a huge Knicks fan um, in the 90s. And then um, for me personally, I always grew up with the Raptors playing on TV. I grew up through um, the Vince years, the Bosch years, the early Larry and DeRozan um, duo. But I started to like really watch and follow the series, the season and the series, um, the playoffs, like I think around 2014, because I vividly remember following mm-hmm. um, the Brooklyn and um, Raptors series and being just so heartbroken <laughs> with that game seven. Um, so right. um, I, I'd say like and then I, I think I started to follow like just the details of basketball and becoming a true fan of the sport in like 2017, 2018. That's when I started to follow statistics, follow um, player profiles, um, drafts. Um, I, I think I just wanted to understand the game at a better level because, honestly, it makes every viewing like more enjoyable and you kind of um, branch out from your own team. When you under- and when you, when you kind of understand other systems and other players and other, other styles, you kind of gain a, more of an appreciation um, for your hometown team, especially if, especially if they're good and competitive. <laughs> So that's like my origin story. And I think um, 2019, 2020, like um, going back to school and stuff, studying, um, writing English journalism, um, I think I got more interested into writing about the sport itself and talking about it um, because I kind of built that knowledge over the years. But yeah, that's my that's my Raptors uh, origin story. <laughs> Like, just, just as I was really getting into what a championship happens. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> How lucky am I? <laughs> you're, you're the Pat McCall Raptor fan. So just... <laughs> if we, <laughs> what if we just have, like, several years of prosperity? How amazing would that be for me? <laughs> no, exactly. You don't want to cover a trash team anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's really cool that you mentioned that, like, you know, you just grew up around basketball your whole life. Because, like, I remember... Like, because like for my family, they um they they left sports, but it was like you know it was mostly just soccer and stuff like that. Mm. And so, like, really, I didn't really dis- like even discover basketball. Like, I just it wasn't even made aware of it until like I went to like middle school, and like it was a thing. Um, where I went to middle school was like everyone had you had to choose whether you liked the hockey or basketball. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah, is that the same for you? Yeah, like. Uh, um, for me, like I, I would, I was always around it. It was such a normal part of my life, like seeing it, coming home after school, um, having dinner, seeing a game on. Um, like even when I think I was like, um, uh, how old was I? I think I, I might have been around seven, eight, when my dad like just randomly put up a giant poster of Vince Carter dunking like right over my bed headboard. <laughs> like it, it was just okay. a normal scene in my life to have basketball around me. So. Uh, it, it was just a very natural progression. Yeah. No, and I think you, you mentioned you're from West Toronto, so I feel like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that huge. It's constant. Like, I grew up in uh, Rexdale. Like, that's so normal. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, it was always like, if you got... 
if you grew up south of Eglinton, <laughs> I feel like, generally speaking, you probably would have liked hockey a little bit more if you grew up, like, south of yeah. Eglinton. <laughs> um, maybe, like, west of, I don't know, Kiel? Yeah, that, <laughs> or that, east that of makes Kiel. sense. Yeah. Makes yeah. Sense. yeah. So, but now it's, yeah. like, a, it's, um, it's a Canadian thing. The Raptors are a Canadian thing now. That's exactly it. And I'm, I'm like, I'm really happy that like, you know, because of the championship, it's like, like, it's just like it brought so many more people on board to the, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, enjoy this. Because it's like one of the few things where, um, I mean, you know, just because of the depressing nature of politics of pretty much at every level, mm-hmm. um, the one time people can really like come to agree on something or basically root for something that I think fundamentally for the Raptors, like it just... Um, it's really representative it's it's really an enjoyable experience or a great thing to root for like it's it's one of the few things that you know you actually have um mm-hmm. in society to sort of like band together on so i i've always appreciated the raptors for that and that's actually um you know wow i didn't even plan this but that's like a good uh segue into this uh current climate where um so over the last few days um, you know, it was brought up that it seems like the some players are having some second thoughts on restarting the season, and appears well, it actually appears of many things. It, it appears one that the league has been very sloppy in terms of how they're going to go about this because players are surprised that like, oh, like uh, people who are going to be working at the Disney Resort aren't going to be in the bubble, so they're going to come in and out of the bubble, which compromises mm-hmm. the security of the bubble. Uh, and then, of course, it seemed like basically the owners had only talked to the superstars. And so, like, a lot of other players weren't represented. Yeah. And so this became more of a uh, more of a talking point when Kyrie Irving decided to uh, come out and show his support um, for uh, a, a, what seems to be a significant faction of players who are concerned that, look, is coming back, given, you know, all the uh, protests going on around Black Lives Matter... Um, that is this the right time for the NBA to be coming back? And you got guys like Kyrie, Dwight Howard, and, and Stephen Jackson um, arguing that it is not the right thing. Personally, for you, like, where do you stand on this issue? Um, for me, I've, uh, I, I think I'm, I'm just at a point of indifference whether it comes back or not. Like, if it comes back, I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't watch it. But um, mm-hmm. I completely understand if players are just having an aversion to having the season restart like they can't see themselves playing or they feel as though if they would be playing it would be um a a distraction or they'd be just incredibly uncomfortable by it um for Kyrie like a lot of people were mentioning that um uh like why is he even talking he's injured he hasn't played all season he played what like maybe a dozen games this season I barely saw him on the court um, I think the whole point of him raising his voice in these calls was because he realized that there was a huge um, section of the of the league itself that wasn't being represented, like players who weren't max money players um, who weren't being uh, asked of their opinions because I guess they don't have the stock um, at stake in the league as you know a top twenty player may. So I, I really appreciated seeing him speak out for them, saying. Like, the premise of what he said was basically, um, if the NBA does come back, let's do it. Let's make sure that we're all on board. But if it doesn't, let's make sure that these guys are heard um, and that we respect their opinions because this league is, what, uh, around 500, 400 players, 450 players or something. So um, to have, you know, these conference calls with, like, a dozen or so top players and not really um, 
listen to the concerns of the you know the tenth guy on the bench or something like it. I, I completely understand where he's coming from, and I really appreciate it because I. I do agree that if sports were to come back, it would be a bit of a distraction. And the owners and the, like, you know, I see a lot of fans saying um, it, it would bring people together and that they could use this platform to speak about change and whatnot. But that's not the concern of the um, owners. Like, what's the best they can do? Like a, a halftime show with a message or something? Like, that's not enough for a lot of these guys. They want to be on the ground um, protesting. They want to be... Um, dealing with charities or funds or something. So um, I, I, I completely get where Kyrie's coming from. And I was pleasantly surprised that he decided to take a stand. It's weird because of all the players to speak, I would expect it to be like someone like Kyrie Irving. But at the same time, I was mm, completely yeah. shocked that he was taking such a stand. Um, I, I don't know who I expected, but it's, it's fitting that it's Kyrie Irving. <laughs> Yeah, it is in a way. And I think that's where some people who... I mean, so the thing is, I can't discern between... Because I, I think, look, it's a completely legitimate point to be raised. Uh, and I think it's definitely a consideration that needs to be had. Especially considering most of the plan to come back was made, you know, before the protests uh, took off and really gained steam. So, you know, yeah. um, this is a new factor and you have to really consider it. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, there's there's been pushback on, on many fronts. And I think really... I, I I'm not really sure if people are you know, pushing back on Kyrie because it's Kyrie and because Kyrie is a figure who, um, you know, based on you know how that Boston situation went, definitely uh, Boston fans aren't very yeah, happy like, with Kyrie. There's also like a faction of LeBron fans who are not very happy with Kyrie <laughs> yes. for multiple reasons. Yes. A because he kind of took some shine away from LeBron because he hit the game-winning shot in 2016. Um. And also, I guess, because he chose to leave um, LeBron. I, I don't know. I don't want to get into the mind frame of LeBron fans. It's uh, it's too much to unpack. Uh, so I, I don't know if it's mostly that or if it's like the, you know, the things that Kyrie had said before of like, uh, you know, I believe the earth is flat, something like that. Like that's, you know, that's something else that I think people sort of hold against Kyrie and so sort of the way he um, comes across. But I, I do think that like, or, or you know, the message itself is, is completely legitimate. And I think... You know, it's, I'm, I'm having, personally having a hard time of basically seeing if the pushback is against the message or if it's just against Kyrie as the messenger, you know? Yeah, like, I've been seeing people, like, preface their tweets about what Kyrie's saying by, like, saying, you know, yeah, this flat earth, this flat earther, um, you know, like, it, it really doesn't change the fact that everything he's saying is valid and legitimate. <laughs> like, um, but, yeah. you know... Um, People need to realize that, like, what they're saying, basically, like, the people who Kyrie is representing are the people that we're going to see on our screens playing the game. So if they have any concerns, like, and you are someone who enjoys basketball, you should be willing to hear them. Like, absolutely. Like, basically, everyone who is pushing back against um, Kyrie really hard need to realize that they're kind of just repackaging Laura Ingram telling them to shut up and dribble at the end of the day because I I, I wrote about it um, on my blog but I kind of realized that people like to really really separate sports from whatever is happening in the world to the point where it becomes just their escapism that's mm -hmm. just devoid of any context of what is happening on earth but like we've reached a point with a pandemic with um, socio political unrest where 
you cannot avoid it. It's going to come up in your um, forms of escapism. You're going to see it represented in your film for years. You're going to see it in your sports. You're going to see it in our schools. Like this is not going to change. So we need to basically confront these issues. Like it's it's not going to work unless you limit the rights of the people involved. So um, I I think that um, people need to take a chance to reflect if they're really really pushing against what Kyrie is saying. Yeah. Um, and, you know, honestly, at the same time, like, I, I think the way this is being reported has been kind of really ugly because it gets yeah. to the heart of sort of what the nature of reporting is, which is that the purpose, at least in me- at least in basketball media, I would say in other forms of media, maybe it's slightly different, although I really do have some uh, reservations about media ethics in general. Um, but I, I think in the nature of basketball media is that, look, the players have their own platforms they can come out and speak it's if they come out and speak it's probably louder than when a reporter speaks for them but at the same time because so many people want to protect their image and people want to put things out anonymously that's where the purpose of some of these guys come in right that's where uh, Woj comes in that's where Chris Haynes or um, Shams and all these major guys (laughs) that's where they come in in terms of their role is sort of to, to push not to push an agenda, but to relay an agenda, right? So, yeah. to, to, so that players can remain anonymous. And so I, I think, you know, what this actually illustrated was just two things. One, um, you know, uh, it, it's it's been really interesting to see the way this meeting that took place, this call that took place on Friday, the way that it was covered by Woj versus the way that it was covered by someone like Chris Haynes. Um, and, you know, I think there's just inherent differences there. Um, but I also think that, you know, there's just... It kind of goes to the point where I talked about my last podcast with Jordan and was sort of like the perspective of the media to cover some things like this. Um, sometimes that empathy and that perspective is just completely lacking. Right. And and I can't help but notice the way Woj reported it as a white man was very, very, uh, you know, basically ridiculing Kyrie. Like you could see some of the quotes he wrote. Oh, in the yeah. story. It's yeah. almost a hit piece. Right. Because, you know, Woj could just write like a bland. Here's information story no problem but you could tell he took his extra time and, and put some things in his hit piece whereas oh, yeah. i think it was more measured when it was written by chris haynes who is black and he can you know sympathize with a lot of the concerns that are affecting some of the players that are on on their conscience yeah um he the title of his piece was what Kyrie the disruptor um yeah. and it, it was weird because he called him Kyrie the disruptor and then went on to say that many of his inquiry uh, many of Kyrie's inquiries were mundane in nature so i'm like Mm. what's the truth that makes no sense um (laughs) but yeah like that's what happens when you really don't work or interact with black people in real life but you cover them as subjects like there's just a lack of empathy or um i don't want to say dehumanization because i don't think there was an active um there was an active um, campaign to dehumanize Kyrie, but there is just a way where they didn't try to see things from his perspective at all. Like there was, I feel like he Woj is smart enough to know the results of painting a, a black athlete who chose to use his voice in that way, and the the backlash that you know subsequently happened was just proof of that. Like he could have helped subdue some of that backlash, but he instead um, kind of you know lit the flame a little bit um mm. and yeah that's I, I noticed a stark difference between what Chris Haynes said and what Woj said like it, it was kind of telling I mean well here's the thing so many because many players were in this in this call 
Um, there was a lot of sources and leaks and things like that that came out of it. And, and some of the some of the information Woj got and the way it was put out there was, you know, as you mentioned, Kyrie's questions were of a mundane nature. Quote. Um, he, he said Kyrie asked if he could sit on his st- in the stands to cheer on his teammates. Could he use a sauna for his rehab? Which seems like such small detail that it's almost like you're undercutting what he's trying to say. Irving wondered what food might be available to players, which is again another very small trivial thing. That um, that okay, if Kyrie brought that up, that's fine, but that doesn't undercut his message. Uh, and then you know, Woj concluded that all in all, Kyrie's inquiries weren't of weighty consequence, and it was like. So basically saying Kyrie brought up a whole bunch of bullshit, right? And that he's just trying to play devil's advocate. First, if you see some of the quotes that Chris Hayne got, it was sort of like Kyrie said, quote, if it's worth the risk, then let's go do it. Uh, But if you're not okay with it, it's okay too. We've got options for both ways. Let's just come to a middle ground as a family, which is a much more reasonable thing. And it it sounds much more um, measured. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like, oh, Kyrie was in here asking about, you know, okay, if, if there's not Oreos in the snack room, I'm not coming to play. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, and what's funny is that he clearly mentioned the details of Kyrie's request as a means to undermine him, but his inquiries were completely legitimate and, like, he was simply asking about the resources and facilities that would be available to players. Like, is he not supposed to? You know? Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I don't know. Like, I, I there was clearly some sort of an a, some sort of a, uh, agenda but like i i don't think anyone has as much of a stake in the mba's return in the media besides espn so i i'm not surprised there's a motive behind that you know i was gonna say it's yeah it's, it's double it's double double whammy really because it's not just espn but it's also like walt disney and stuff like that yeah exactly who owns espn Exactly. Well, that 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 part in itself is already kind of weird. It's like, oh yeah, how convenient they just ended up here, where they signed a twenty four billion dollar contract with them, and they're just all of a sudden playing in Orlando, even though uh, Florida has like a, a higher number of cases every day. But um, I no, I was just gonna say, of all places to play, they're in like one of the worst hit zones in North America. <laughs> like, what the heck? Florida's edging like over two thousand cases a day, like. That's unfathomable. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is like, look, it's, it's, I don't think this is the majority of players. I think, you know, some players have brought this up and I think they should have their voice heard. But it seems like, you know, when you have, uh, a, you know, roughly 450 players and then, of course, a bunch of coaches and, and other people involved, like, you're not going to get a uniform opinion, right? And so I think it's not fair necessarily to, to characterize it as, oh, the owners want this thing to happen because of the money, but the players don't want it to happen and they're getting pushed into it. No, I think yeah. a lot of players legitimately just want to play, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it's it's fair what Kyrie brought up. And, and you know, I, I think really the, the other issues is it just seems like this thing is very sloppily presented to players. Like when J.J. Redick saw, a, a, you know, uh, some some story from Tom Haberstroh about sort of, oh, you know, there's reporting that basically, you know, um, workers are going to be able to come in and out of the bubble. So, you know, then J.J. Redick was like, so it's basically not a bubble. And it felt like <laughs> a lot of players were surprised by some of the details. And it just seems like this is this is sloppily handled. Like, it's an extremely difficult situation by, by all means, right? There's a lot of things going on. I've noticed that it seems a lot of players are learning things with us on Twitter, like judging by their reaction to news. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like it, it's it's such a 
difficult thing to coordinate. And I completely sympathize and understand with that. But at the same time, what you're asking the players to do is A, assume pretty much all the risk, right? Normally, so players would get 51% of BRI, <laughs> basketball related income. But that's because the risk is shared, right? Like the the owners have to, um, you know, put up the venue, put up the money up front to the salary, stuff like that. Theoretically, the risk is shared, and of course, the players, you know, deliver the products, stuff like that. Right now, it's just the players doing one hundred percent of the value. Like the owners aren't doing anything. Yeah, <laughs> they're not actually bringing anything. They're obviously not going to the actual thing to watch this thing or to be a part of it. So the players are taking one hundred percent of the risk. You're asking them to be there for two months. Um, and go through training camp and everything like that, going through all this testing. They're away from family. It's very strict about that. Um, you're asking them for a lot. So, like, I think, you know, this is a, a bit of a failure by the NBA and I guess even by the NBPA to let the players know and keep them informed because, like, damn, you, if, if your work was telling you to do some stuff that basically the NBA is telling the players to do, like, you would be very upset in the first place and then you would also want as much detail as possible. And that seems to be lacking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I, I also wonder, like you know, it, it's the incentive for some players to play. Like you know that that part I completely understand. Like if, if you're, I don't know, like a, a player in the Suns, of course, if you come to play, you, you, there's more <laughs> money to recoup. You can make some money, so there's definitely an incentive. But at the same yeah. time, like. I don't know, man. <laughs> like, what's the point? You're gonna come in. You're gonna you're gonna go into this quarantine. You're gonna do a, traveling in the first place. You're gonna have to stay there for a month um, to, to, for for training camp. Then you're gonna play the eight game season where you basically have a not very very high chance whatsoever to make the playoffs. And then you just go home, and it's like, is 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 any of that worth it for some of these guys? You know what I mean? Yeah, like uh, people were laughing at Damian Lillard for saying that he's not gonna play um, unless you know such and such happens. And I'm like, I completely understand it. Like, he knows his team is likely not going to make it into the playoffs with the competition for that um, eight seed in the um, West. So, like, are we going to pretend that that is not a real concern? Like, players are risking injury um, to play in a broken season. Like, you, ha- I-, I saw a story yesterday where a bunch of um, <clears throat> rookies from the 2017 draft are up for max contracts or you know uh, rookie extension contracts so you know they want insurance they want to know that if anything happens to them their money isn't going to be compromised like this is their livelihood so you know like I I thought that was interesting seeing how they're going to navigate all of these contracts all of these very valid injury concerns for people who aren't you know the top four teams in every uh, conference it's you know, it's going to be interesting. You know, the one guy that I've sort of thought about a, a lot is like, what if you were in DeMar DeRozan's shoes, right? Like, um, the Spurs are four games back of the A seed, and mm-hmm. they basically need to jump four teams to get uh, into the playoffs. Now, there's that play-in tournament and stuff like that, so, you know, he, they don't necessarily have to be make up four games in eight games. They just need to remain in, in striking distance. But nevertheless... It's it's a long shot for the Spurs to go in, right? And then you have Lamarcus Aldridge, who's already had season-ending surgery, so he's not going to be there. And as much as I love Jakob Pertl, and I feel like he's a very underrated piece for the Spurs, it's not the same <laughs> when you're going into the playoffs with uh, Jakob Pertl as your starting center. When in the first round, you're probably playing the Lakers, so you're getting Anthony Davis versus Jakob Pertl. That doesn't seem like oh a great goodness. matchup. <laughs> you're getting, De- and as DeMar DeRozan, you're probably getting to see LeBron again, which, um, oh, no. you know, I mean, I would probably just try to 
try to avoid that as much as possible. I feel like he's had enough, really. Um, and then, you know, you look at it as like, okay, so is Greg Popovich going to be there? And that's one of the questions <laughs> I've had, too. It's just like, okay, so for a lot of the players, the risk is there, and it's very serious to get COVID and things like that. But chances are that, or chances are very good that they will recover and, you know, for the most part, their health will be uh, okay in the long run. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's a different story for a guy like Greg Popovich, who's seventy plus. You know what I mean? Like he is the high risk group. Like you know what I mean? Like I, um, yeah. I haven't seen my grandparents in a very long time, and I don't. I don't want to be around my grandparents specifically because I'm worried about them because of their age. Like Popovich is basically a grandpa. Um, and then yeah, ultimately for tomorrow, it's like okay, you have all these things, and it's like okay, if he still wants to play, he can still play. But then for him, it's like. He is a potential free agent. He has a player option at the end of the season. If he chooses yeah. to go into free agency, then you know he's looking for another big contract. <clears throat> if he gets hurt in the course of this thing, where he has to fight this extremely uphill battle, um, and he gets hurt, then you know that's also a consideration. So I'm just saying, there's 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 a lot of factors at play for a lot of the players not to want to play, and so that's why I think ultimately for me, it's like, look. The, the 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 league has to talk more with the players and just really figure everything out and then come together with maybe a better strategy than this 22 teams thing because that seems like a, a lot in the first place. And then the other thing is like, if the players don't want to play, they should have the option not to play. I, I think everyone should have their, their freedom to make their own decisions, right? Like some players feel like they can use the platform while they're playing, like LeBron has said, right? Uh, you know, then okay, then go play, use the platform, do what you feel is best. And if other players like Dwight Howard are like, look, I don't feel like this is a great idea. I'm not going to participate in this. They should have the freedom to do that too. Yeah. Um, it's completely understandable. And I know for Dwight, particularly like the mother of his children died from uh, COVID-19. And then you have other players who, you know, like I, I read about how there are like, even though someone may make a recovery from COVID-19, which is like the vast, vast majority of people, especially under the age of like 65, that doesn't account for chronic damage to the lungs. You know what I mean? I don't, Mm -hmm. it's, it's very difficult because you basically have to weigh, is it worth the chance that there are certainly going to be, there's certainly going to be somebody who sustains irreversible damage, even if they do make up, uh, full recovery from the, from the uh, virus itself. So I I don't know if any of these risks are genuinely worth it. Like if 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 all the players were a hundred percent into the idea of the NBA coming back and they were like like just just go steam ahead, I would I would be for it because that's what they wanted. But when you factor in the risks from the virus, when you factor in the social unrest, when you factor in that the majority of the NBA is African-American, is part of the affected communities, um, then it becomes so much more complicated and difficult. Uh, And, you know, I feel like what we see in the next couple months and how the NBA handles this and the resulting uh, outcome is going to be something that affects the league, like, just for the future period. Yeah. And, And apparently they might rip up the CBA, yeah, and that's like a whole nother factor. Like, like they, it, like I'm hearing talks about how they could rip up the CBA, and another uh, CBA is definitely not going to be um, conjured up in the midst of a pandemic, uh, and how that could lead to the construction of another league. Like, it, it gets really crazy. Mm. 
yeah wow there's definitely a lot um uh there um <clears throat> from the raptors perspective though <laughs> so okay so from the raptors perspective <laughs> i don't know it is a raptors podcast um yeah i'm down with that let's talk about the raptors yeah it, it seems like for the most part I don't, at least I haven't heard of any sort of involvement from the Raptors in terms of their hesitation towards playing. I'm sure they have hesitations, as I think everyone is, com- you know, completely justified in, uh, you know, having second thoughts about something like this. But, you know, f- to my knowledge, I-, I don't think any of the Raptors are against coming back. Um, you know, I've been thinking about just sort of what's at stake for some of the Raptors um, this year in the playoffs. And I feel like it could be a really nice playoff run. And I think, you know, starting with a guy like Pascal Siakam, I feel like you know, there's just a lot for him to prove. I mean, look, he did a lot of that last year, most improved player. Of course, he carried that into the playoffs being, I don't know, basically Scottie Pippen to uh, Kawhi's Michael Jordan. And honestly, mm-hmm. it wasn't that far off. Like, Kawhi was that good. And, of course, Pascal was that good. But it's it's totally different to be, you know, um, to, to make that jump from being Scottie to being Michael. And I wanted to see sort of if he can sort of handle that role. And and one thing that's always um, stuck with me is, you know, you made this point a couple times on Twitter where it's sort of the Raptors this year have put Pascal in situations where it's almost been extra difficult. Like they're almost trying to recreate difficult situations for him just so that he has reps for um, when the game itself, when the opponent forces them to be difficult. Um, can you expand on just sort of like what you meant by some of that stuff and just sort of yeah, sure. what you've seen out of um, Pascal this year? Yeah, um, I feel like it really um, became clear after, um, I think it was the first month of the season where Pascal had a really hot start and he was looking like perhaps like the second best player in the conference. I'm not even exaggerating, just behind Giannis. Um, But I I think we quickly saw um, his play kind of come down to earth. Um, And I I was, I I felt like I was going crazy because I was consistently seeing him um, doing the most diff- difficult option in every scenario, it seemed. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like in the beginning of the season, his scoring was amazing. He was shooting, I think, over 40% from three. Um, he was looking like, you know, beyond our wildest dreams. But then um, I feel like he started to, uh, he was more turnover prone. And I noticed that there was a emphasis on distribution for Pascal, like to have him draw in help and then pass the ball to his teammates to uplift his team and to get the offense just buzzing and look to look more dynamic. Um, I'm noticing like there's just a, a lack of, you know, classic pick and roll throughout the game. And then Nick Nurse will throw it out consecutively in the last couple minutes of a tough game that they're, you know, on the brink of losing and then it will help them win mm-hmm. at the end. So... <laughs> They, you know, these these teams have, you know, extensive um, scorekeepers and people who collect this data and break it down. So I'm positive they're familiar with the fact that, you know, a Lowry Pascal role is virtually unstoppable. Uh, they're completely knowledgeable of that. But we con- like continuously see Pascal, um, you know, trying out his mid-ranger, which isn't the most um, high-percentage shot in his profile. We see him going for those pull-up threes. We see him um, tumbling towards four defenders and then passing it into, um, you know, the nearest open three. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, it actually makes complete sense because it teaches him how to draw help. It teaches him how to distribute. It teaches him how to be 
uh, a playmaker for the team. It teaches them how to be like a, a, a point forward, essentially. Um, and it makes sense because in order to be in order to become better, it's going it's going to be ugly. <laughs> You're going to see um, a lot of um, turnovers. We're going to see a lot of um, missed shots. We're going to see a lot of um, lost games due to this. Um, but essentially, I think that it's a necessary part of his development, and it, it makes sense because Nick Nurse has spoken about how, um, in order to, he believes that he, it's part of his philosophy to put players in tough to, in tough positions in order to make them better because he believes that learning through mistakes is a real thing. Like he can very easily put Pascal in a position to succeed continuously. Just give him his highest percentage shot profile and have him just beat it like a dead horse, like just continuously do it and win games along the way. But that, at the end of the day, that just gives him a security blanket and it exasper exasperates his weaknesses and it makes it easier to um, scout to guard a player like Pascal and to um, target his weaknesses in a playoff setting. Um, and I think, that, I think that's essentially the difference between a player like um, Jason Tatum or Pascal Siakam because right now it seems as though it's this like, coin flip like whoever you say is better is valid like you could say Tatum's better and that's completely valid you could say Pascal's better and that's completely valid because essentially their stats are the same their team records are the same their roles are very similar but I think the difference mm -hmm. is if you see a player like Tatum play it's clear that Brad Stevens is putting him in a position to succeed by giving him his best looks every single time. It's all. It's continuously um, Daniel Tice setting screens and giving um, Tatum clear lanes straight to the rim, or um, having him walk into um, threes, come off screens um, at the perimeter. And it makes complete sense. Um, but I think I think um, you 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 probably won't see this. Uh, working effectively on any other player besides Pascal because I feel like he's someone who's so invested into the process. He's someone who's mm -hmm. not afraid to look stupid sometimes. He's someone who understands that with hard work, you can. He he's seen the what, what would I call it? Um, he's seen the fruits of his labor so often throughout his career that he's somebody that you can apply this philosophy to. So I feel like he's the perfect star for um, a coach like Nick Nurse and. I can't wait to see um, their relationship develop um, as you know, coach and player over the years, um, because even um, the last couple games, I'm rambling now, but I, I want to get this out there. But even the last couple games of the season, um, Raptors versus uh, I think it was Sacramento, uh, the Warriors, and even the Jazz, we were beginning to see um, a player who was kind of turning the corner. Um, he was doing passes I've like not seen him execute with such precision like over the course of his career period um, and I think that's like really exciting yeah I mean look man watching Pascal develop in real time and, and, and such like breakneck speed is it's been one of the most joyous um, storylines in the last couple of years for the Raptors for sure and and you know, I think with a guy like Pascal too, it's it isn't really interesting because you know, as you mentioned, that Larry Siakam pick a roll doesn't really come out any other part of the game. But at the end of the game, <laughs> they go to it quite often. And uh, I remember like um, there was a game against Orlando. Like this was super early this season, so you could tell this has like been a concerted strategy pretty much all year. But uh, it was against Orlando. It was at home. 
And the Raptors, you know, Siakam was having a little bit of trouble with Jonathan Isaac. You know, like he, he was trying to go at him. He got, I think he got blocked a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the game, it was entirely different. The Raptors, you know, scored on four straight possessions where it was Lowry, Siakam pick and roll. Siakam was the roll man. And that's been one of the things that's been interesting is like so much what Siakam did last year, right? Posting up, hitting corner threes, running on transition. That's not as much a part of his game anymore. And I think that's kind of by design, as you mentioned, right? Like you're, they're putting him in these pick and rolls. They're basically telling, Nick Nurse is basically telling Pascal, you're, you're, you're in Kumon this year. I don't care that you're a straight-A student. Here's some extra homework from uh, two grades above you so you can study for AP Bio. And it's just like he's just making him do a lot more difficult things so that when the time comes, like, yeah, he is prepared. Um, And so I am really interested to see sort of how much of that translates, right? Because last year, by any measure of success, Pascal was successful last year. I mean, he the stat I was going back to is him and Kawhi Leonard – last year scored as many points as Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen ever combined for in a playoff run. Okay, so that's that's just an obscene um, uh, just you know achievement there. But um, for Pascal, we did see sometimes, right, in that Milwaukee series, he only averaged about 14 points per game. His shooting percentage was down. And the way teams tried to guard and successfully guarded Siakam, you know, in some of those series was they put a bigger guy like Embiid, they put a bigger guy like um, uh, Brooke Lopez on him, then they really sagged back, you know, basically dared him and disrespect, basically gave him like a Ben Simmons treatment almost, um, and forced him to shoot the long jumper, and he just couldn't hit enough of those to keep the offense, um, to, to be as efficient as it normally was, and I think... That's where Siakam this year spends so much of his time operating at the top of the floor, whether that's pulling up for three, whether that's, you know, uh, running a pick and roll, trying to get to the rim, uh, whether that's trying to create and, and, you know, maybe even that mid-range area, maybe take a couple shots from there, that, man, I I just want to see how much of that has translated to the highest level in the playoffs. And I think I'm so excited to see Pascal again. Yeah, because very easily Nick Nurse could have just allowed Pascal to do what he did last season, but at a higher volume. And he could have very easily mm-hmm. just averaged like 27, you know, um, points per game if he was just given the easy route. But we see him doing things that he was not doing at all last season. Like those above the break threes were such a small part of his game. But now it's probably the first mm-hmm. shot he'll take in a game. He'll just walk into them. And it's like, I can't, sometimes I, I, I say, like if I'm watching a, uh, Raptors game and I'm like imagine if I showed myself a clip of this in like 2017 <laughs> this is Pascal Siakam leading your team max level champion Pascal Siakam walking into threes and taking turn around jumpers yeah it's it's unbelievable like I, I got flamed a little bit on, on Reddit a couple of weeks back when uh, one of my old surfers where I said wow Pascal <laughs> Well, definitely, but um, but I mean, I, I think I deserve to in this sense because I, I tweeted out look in tw- some random game in 2017. I was like, man, Pascal Siakam is one of the worst rotation players uh, in the NBA right now, and I, and honestly, it was it was it was too far, uh, and I was a little reckless, but like it also wasn't that far <laughs> off because Pascal was like really 22%? struggling, man. He was like 22 percent was... from three, right? He, basically, he was doing a Luis Scola thing. Like you would play four minutes to start the first quarter, the first and, and the, the first four minutes of the third quarter, and then come out and just not see the floor again. Um, and then defensively, he was active, and and that part is probably why that statement was wrong. But offensively, man, it was it was tough to watch, especially when he hit the rookie wall. But yeah, the way he is now, it's it's actually um, 
it's it's been really uh, it's just been incredible, and to see him continue to improve, it's it's great too. It's also a great example of like drafting the most polished player coming out of college or the most skilled player. Like that's not necessarily always the right thing to do because with a guy like Pascal, even though his age, like he's twenty six, he's a couple years older than my guy like Tatum, and so maybe Tatum has more development. It's like well, Pascal's also a guy who came in pretty much with no bad habits. And so you can mold him into basically whatever you want to, depending on mm-hmm. uh, if you have good coaching. And the Raptors obviously have great coaching. So yeah, um, that's what I I use the Tatum um, uh, example because there, there's such a stark contrast between the two because Tatum is younger and also like he's a classically trained player. Like he's been trained probably since he was a toddler. Um, whereas mm-hmm. you have Pascal who began playing, you know, at an organized level at what like 16 years old. So, yeah, um, and, and that's when we saw, um, you know, we'd see like, <laughs> uh, Tatum compilation videos and stuff. Like that's when mm-hmm. he was being scouted at a national level. So uh, I, I can't wait to see those two over the course of the se- next several years, because I think they're just going to be at the top of the East. So, um, I think it's something that fans should monitor. Like with someone with Pascal, we have evidence and data of his progression as a player. Um, and maybe he reaches his ceiling. Maybe this is the, the zenith of his capabilities. And Pascal Siakam is just going to be a 24 p- uh, points per game guy, you know, a great defender. And, and that's it. And that's actually totally fine. Like, that's also a very useful player that you can build around. Um, but mm-hmm. I also think that um, it's something worth seeing for the next two, three years. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that. That just makes you excited, too, because you just know the Raptors are going to be good for a while because they have one of the best players in the Eastern Conference um, and obviously a great staff around them. Um, the other thing I, I guess I was looking forward to in the playoffs is just sort of seeing not one more great playoff run from Kyle Lowry because I, I feel like I've done this in the past and it, it's been a mistake on my part. But um, like I, I always wonder, I'm like, man, Kyle's getting older. Who knows? Like You, you get really bogged down in the idea that you know this might be it. Um, so I don't want to do that again. But having said that, though, Kyle was having, I mean, it's it's it was so fun to see what Kyle did this year. It was such a throwback season for him because he had basically gone back to being a guy who can give you 20 points on a nightly basis while also being so smart, so under control, um, so wise, so clever in terms of all of his little tricks. Defensively, I felt like it was one of his best seasons defensively, even though it doesn't make any sense for someone to be better defensively at 34 than he was when he was younger. Um, but he was doing so many heads-up things in terms of taking charges, in terms of the way he was guarding, um, the way he was playing on and off the ball. He basically achieved the sort of mastery of basically being Kyle Lowry. Like, he had met, he had put together all the best parts of what he has done in the past into this one, one singular product. And again, he's 34 years old. Um, He's got a championship. He's he's got all sorts of all star accolades. He's got an Olympic gold medal. You know, he's got all NBA. Um, you know, and, and honestly, if he has one more great playoff run, right, a one more just elite playoff run, and I know he has it in him because he played at, at that level this season. If he does have that, I feel like he could really a cement his Hall of Fame case, and then b is just like as fans, like man, you, you would just give us a, just yet another time to you know appreciate Kyle for what he is. Yeah, just savor it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that winning yeah. the championship really helped him kind of just become really confident and sure of himself um, and just mm-hmm. being Kyle Lowry, like knowing that being Kyle Lowry is enough, you know, it's enough to be a point guard yeah. of a championship squad. Like, I think we saw kind of the culmination of that in the All-Star game in February 
where he was just like yeah. completely himself Man. for like the first time. Usually he's, you know, waiting in the corner and stuff, but like he was himself. And I think that um, uh-huh. I this is such like a small window where his capabilities and his confidence are like matched that, um, you know, it sucks mm-hmm. that we can't see it in a classic playoff run, but I kind of just come to terms with the fact that he's probably going to be great for um, some more years to come because I, I think that like it's not going to be out of the ordinary to say that Kyle Lowry is like among the top point guards maybe till like he's 36, 37 or something because like what the one thing that I think defines his game is like his brain and his strength mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can't see him losing those two things like maybe we'll see his legs go and I think we're already kind of seeing that with his three point becoming less deadly um, but I, I think that he's going to be like such a, a useful part of any team that has him um, for a couple mm-hmm. more years to go. Yeah, I, I definitely see. You know, um, I, I think Kyle's development and sort of his um, the way he's matured in his game, as you mentioned, it relies a lot, way less on athleticism than he did before. And he was definitely a guy who got to the rim first and foremost. That was Kyle Lowry, like being super yeah. athletic. For, being this like weird little bowling ball and just like getting to the paint, drawing free throws, finishing um, at the rim, and uh, honestly, occasionally dunking. Like if you watch some young Kyle Lowry highlights, there's Kyle Lowry with like, okay, not LeBron esque, but like, you know, some really impressive chase down blocks, and you just wouldn't expect it from yeah, a guy of no, his size. Yeah, no, he was but... explosive. Yeah, I would not want to be in front of yeah. that. Like he was really explosive. Yeah, and and he's gone to the point now where, as you mentioned, like he, he's it's a lot more ground bound. It's a lot more in the brain, and I think. You know, he could probably follow like a, a Steve Nash type of um, career arc where it's more graceful. Like a lot of his best years are going to be in his 30s like Steve Nash was. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, even something like like a Jason Kidd. Now, Jason Kidd fell off a little bit harder, but like Jason Kidd was still a useful player on every rotation that he was in. You know, and he was yeah. just because of the way he fought the game, the way he defended, stuff like that. And I think the biggest thing between Kyle and those two guys is that, like, you know, nowadays the NBA is so much more predicated on three-point shooting that before it was pretty much impossible and it was outside of John Stockton, never seen before, where six-foot guards were be, were able to succeed, were able to score, were able to be uh, effective and be a great starter uh, beyond the age of 34, basically. That was, like, the, the tail-off point. It was basically just John Stockton. But now, like, with the three-point shooting being the way it is, uh, and, and there being more space on the floor, obviously shooting being much more important, I can also see kind of an argument for why some of these players, as long as they keep up their um, endurance and as long as they keep up their physicality, and I think Kyle has done a great job of sort of taking care of his body for the last, like, yeah. couple of years now. Um, as long as he does that, I think it'd be great. And, and and just one more great playoff run too. Just just you know what I mean? Because um, obviously we're we're not going to be able to watch Kawhi back. We're not going to be able to watch you know Danny again. But you know the one guy that's you know you could still go on and completely cheer your heart out for is Kyle Lowry. In addition to all these other guys, but you know it would just be nice to have like Kyle Lowry do an encore of what he did last year. Because yeah. If he does that, there's a real chance. I mean, you know, the the Hall of Fame thing is there. The the greatest Raptor of, of all time is already secured. But damn it, man, I just I want to see one more great Kalari player from. Yeah, yeah. Um, I even think like that his his um, like just being an elite defender will also help his game age really well. Um, I, like mm-hmm. that, that's something that even not even Nash had. You know what I mean? That a point guard who can, you know, defend. Even the guys 
way bigger than him and still like stand a chance like it, that's i think like i that's why i think that um seeing how like chris paul is only a year older than kyle um but seeing mm-hmm. how chris paul is aging and seeing how he's still like among the best point guards in the nba and i don't see that changing in the next couple years like um you know like I, I I think that fans should monitor like Chris Chris Paul's um, development because I think that's what um, Kyle's going to mirror mirror sorry more more similarly. Yeah, for sure. Um, except Kyle Lowry has a ring. Chris Paul's a fraud. <laughs> um, and then lastly, I, what what I wanted to touch on was um, so you started a blog, Neon Playbook. What is this about? Yes. Um, I started it just a couple of days ago, um, you know, um, after being nagged for years to write <laughs> my thoughts more often um, and to just ar- archive um, anything that I think. Um, so I just went ahead um, and started my own journal, um, which is basically like a, a um, culture and MBA um, online journal, um, the neonplaybook.com. Um, and you know, the response has been amazing and it's basically, I spoke about it earlier right now where, um, I was talking about how, uh, people really make an effort to separate, um, basketball from the world that they live in, um, and create it into like this, um, escape this bubble for themselves. But I kind of do the opposite with this, with this blog where I just write, you know, a series of thoughts and personal essays where I kind of just force um, the NBA into the conversation happening in, in the in the world right now, and you know, um, I think I'm going to do uh, player profiles in the future. But uh, I, I I personally love reading that kind of um, sports writing where it's a personal essay situation because for me that's how I like to consume um, entertainment, culture, art. Um, when it comes to music, I love reading personal essays. When it comes to film, I love seeing how uh, people frame. Um, something that they enjoy in their world, in um, their experiences. And I just think that it just enriches the game that we watch. Like, I really think that people should more often talk about basketball the same way they talk about film. Like, we love to contextualize um, movies. We love to contextualize music and art. I think we should do the same for sports. Um, And this is kind of just my um, contribution (laughs) to that culture. Um, And there are already a lot of people who are doing an amazing job um, with um, sports writing and um, NBA writing in particular. Uh, but I think that's the direction that I see um, journalism in the sport taking, um, especially in the world that we live in today. I think that's just natural progression. You know, I, I read the, the first few pieces that you put out. And, you know, the, one of the first, I guess, thoughts I had was it reminded me um, a little bit of the way I feel when I read someone like Katie Heindel. Yeah, like she she was she was amazing and supportive um with the whole process. So, um, and she's a co-host right. for people who don't know of the Dishes and Dimes podcast. Katie's amazing. Katie is really amazing. Um, definitely like one of the most underrated people doing this right now, especially on the Raptors beat. Um, but yeah, I just think that you know it's it, it's it's really cool that um that you put this out there. And stuff like that. So, is, has writing always been something that you wanted to do? Has it been a career or goal of yours? Like. I, I don't know. I don't mean to sound like a parent, but like, no. <laughs> why are you wasting your time on writing? <laughs> no, you sound like, no, that's every immigrant parent. 
I'm only saying this because that's what my parents told me, okay? <laughs> no, like, no, my parents have been, like, really, really, really supportive. They were actually the ones, like, pushing me to mm -hmm. just go ahead and start it. Because I always just kind of, like, put it out there, like, wow, I should, like, start a journal or something. Uh, just archive my thoughts and, like, see the progression uh, for myself as a writer. Uh, but, like, I wanted to be a writer, period, since I was a teenager. It's what I wanted to go to school for. Um... I, I didn't care what it was. I didn't care if it was cultural criticism. I didn't care if it was television writing, if it was screenplay writing, if it was journalism. I just wanted to write because I had, um, I had so many opinions and I had, um, just, I really enjoyed um, putting them in writing form and having people read them. Um, but for me, like, I went to school for English and then I kind of found a job um, before even graduating. Um, and I was kind of just stuck making, like, making money is very alluring, especially when you're in the, uh, you know, a broke student. Um, but, you know, I, I'm 25 right now, and I kind of went back um, to study um, journalism. And I kept, it reignited my love for writing once again. And it happened to coincide with the time where I was really enjoying basketball and, you know, um, falling into the details of the game. So I, it was like a really happy marriage for me. <laughs> Um, and it's, you know, it's something that I want to pursue. And this is like the style um, that I really enjoy um, writing in uh, for sports writing in particular. Like, um, I feel like there are a few styles to do, but this Definitely. is a way that I kind of just, um, it's just a melange of my favorite um, ways to critique um, basketball and culture. And for me, it's it's a very natural process, like writing about, um, like I recently wrote a piece about um, the whole situation with the NBA and the controversy between having it come back and people just becoming really uncomfortable with the way that um, the politics of uh, their lives are kind of bleeding into what they consume as uh, entertainment. And um, I was talking about how it's just a natural progression um, of society. And it's actually shocking, like just how easy it is for me to um, uh view um, sports in this way like for me I, I find the viewing experience way more enjoyable when I can just when it coincides with um, what I'm experiencing in the real world like it just makes it more real for me that's how I enjoy watching movies it's how I enjoy listening to music I like knowing the context and the history um, and yeah uh, hopefully um, you know it's something that I want to continue doing for a while and just um, really hone you know the craft of um getting my thoughts out. It's, it's not like someone tweeted um the other day where like our first draft is very humbling like that could not be more true <laughs> for me in particular oh, definitely. definitely yeah like <laughs> i just want it to become an easier process and this is kind of my way of practicing and i really appreciate um everyone who's been reading it and sending words of encouragement um but yeah it's it's been amazing you know you've been one of my favorite twitter followers for um quite a while now and i've always thought that you were very insightful i've always found you to be really funny and to be um just very smart about the whole subject of what we're watching right we're all watching something together what are you bringing to the table um thank you thank you <laughs> what do you bring to the timeline right and like no I, I you know i completely mean that and and anytime i see that i'm always curious i'm like okay can can this person i'm always secretly hoping that like, can this person start writing or can they start doing like a podcast just so i can get more expanded thoughts beyond like you know, 280 characters. Exactly. And so I'm, I'm really happy that uh, you started this. Um, it, it's it's definitely cool. You can check it out. It's called Neon Playbook. Um, 
anyway so yasmin thanks for you know joining me on the podcast and, and taking time out of your uh sunday afternoon uh is there anything else you want to plug or you know leave the viewers or our listeners with um no like yeah check out um the neon playbook.com uh I'm, i i there was so much to write about in the last few days i think i like tr- churned out like five pieces um in the last couple of days but i want to get down to like uh, about two pieces a week um mm-hmm. and check out the dishes and dimes podcast which i um co-host with a bunch of other ladies um from nba twitter um and yeah follow me at carmelo drama on twitter <laughs> yeah definitely highly recommend all of those things so uh thanks to everyone for listening and uh, i'll be back later this week with a, uh, another interview Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.